Let's pray to God and ask him for his help to understand his word. Heavenly Father, we just uh, sang about the Spirit and his work in our lives. And we do indeed pray now that he would do that part of the work uh, which we particularly need at this point as we come to your word, that your Spirit would open our eyes uh, and would speak to us in a living and active way such that we hear you speaking to us as if it was an audible voice today. So speak to our hearts, speak to our minds uh, through this text. Help me to do a good job of explaining it clearly, but also bring home to each of us, we pray, the wonderful implications of it for our lives as Christian people who trust in Christ. Amen. Uh, Do you sometimes suffer doubts concerning your Christian faith? How do we feel when we doubt? Don't we feel sometimes a little bit guilty? Uh, Doubt feels like a wrong response to God, doesn't it? We have all this head knowledge as Christians, but when we're faced with the realities of life, we may well experience doubt. And then the question arises, why is it that we doubt God? Uh, The question that lurks probably behind our doubts is this. Can God be trusted? Can he be trusted? When we go back to the Old Testament character of Abram, we find that he had those doubts and wrestles. He is responding in that way in his life situation. He has doubts, but God addresses them. And God responds with words of gentle assurance. Abram is not rebuked for his doubts, But God is gentle in dealing with him and bringing him to a place where he has a deeper level of assurance. Uh, Firstly, he has doubts about God's protection. Uh, If you were here last week, we saw, of course, Abram pursuing uh, this coalition of four kings from the east and rousing them, defeating them, and rescuing his nephew Lot. But of course, chapter 15 opens, and it seems Abram is fearful. In all likelihood, he's fearful of a retaliatory strike from this Eastern coalition. And yet, what does God do? God reassures him. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 1. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God will protect him. He is his shield. Uh, Secondly, he has doubts about God's promises. Uh, God's promises, firstly, of a great family line. It's probably now about 10 years since God's first made these great promises to him of a great nation. And yet, of course, by this point, 10 years on, he's still got no kids. Uh, He says in verse 3, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And yet again, God speaks words of assurance to Abram in his doubts. Verse 4, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. There it is, God's word assuring him, even though what he sees is childlessness, God looks into the future and he says to Abram, so shall your offspring be. He also has doubts about God's promise of this vast land. 
uh, verse 8. O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so what does God do? Wonderfully and graciously, God gives Abram a glimpse of the future. God sort of just pulls back the window uh, and gives him this glimpse of what will be. He reveals to Abraham what will happen to his descendants. Uh, For four centuries, they will be in a foreign land, enslaved, but then wonderfully, they will be liberated. And with that little glimpse of the future, uh, Abraham's faith is strengthened. So you see, what's happening is, Abraham's faith is struggling in the face of the realities of life. And the question behind his questions to God is really, God, can I really trust you to do what you've said you will do? And as we're seeing, God speaks words of assurance. And he says to Abraham, trust me, I will do what I've said I will do. But do you see, Abraham still has a choice. How will he respond to God's word? How will he respond to God's assurances? Will he continue to doubt or will he trust it? And wonderfully we see, of course, he chooses the latter. He chooses to trust God's word. Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Uh, This verse is a a landmark verse. Uh, It is an amazing verse. It's this landmark verse in our understanding of faith. What it is actually is it's the gospel in a nutshell. And here it is in the Old Testament. What it is, is it's a glimpse of the path back to God. Uh, What it's all about is righteousness through faith in God's word, his promise. And when we look to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, uh, we see there's no other Old Testament text that has had such an influence on our understanding of salvation and faith. It's actually quoted three times in the New Testament, uh, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James chapter 2. Uh, Let's go to Romans 4. Um, It's quoted earlier in Romans 4, and then in verse 13, uh, Paul concludes this. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes through faith. There it is. That is the gospel. Righteousness that comes through faith. Faith in God's word. Faith in God's promises. Faith that God will do what he said he will do. That's the gospel. So, uh, God has given Abram his word. Uh, Abram believes God's word. But God wonderfully goes further. Uh, God wants to assure Abram that what he said will actually come to pass. And he wants to assure Abram of that and also his descendants after him. And therefore, to achieve this, God does something that he has never done before at this point in biblical history. He instructs Abram to prepare for what to us is a puzzling and macabre ceremony. And yet it wasn't puzzling to Abram. Uh, He knows what's going on, at least he thinks he does. Uh, All God has to do is to tell him to bring a heifer and a goat and a ram and some birds, and Abram knows what to do. Without any further instructions, uh, Abram cuts them into two and arranges them in this, this gruesome set of path markers. Now, what on earth is going on? Well, they're actually about to make a covenant, that is, a a sort of contract. Now, in our written culture today, uh, how do we make a contract? 
uh, we write something down and we sign it. Uh, the contract states, of course, what we're committing to do. And when we sign it, what we're doing is we're giving an assurance that we will do what we've said we will do. Uh, it's the means by which in our society uh, we are held accountable to do what we said we'll do. But in oral cultures, they didn't do that. In an oral culture, when you make a contract or a covenant, you have this ceremony. It's actually like an enacted drama. It involves a physical action. And what you're doing is you're acting out the consequences of breaking your vows. You're actually acting out what is called the curse of the covenant. And it's pretty vivid, isn't it? Uh, you cut these animals in two, you arrange the halves opposite each other, and then what you actually do is you walk between them. And when you walk between them, you're saying in a visual way, may it be unto me, as has been done to these animals, if I don't fulfill my vows. So, that is what is happening between Abram and God. A covenant is being established which guarantees God's previous promises of people and place, and it's actually a binding oath. So, Abraham uh, would have been very familiar with this ritual. However, there comes a point where the familiar gives way to the unfamiliar, because the events do not unfold as Abraham expects. Uh, he falls into a deep sleep, and a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appear. Uh, what is going on here? Now, the words which are used and rendered as a, a, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, uh, it's pretty tricky as to how you actually translate them. Uh, the first word, a smoking fire pot, actually could be translated billowing smoke. Uh, the second word, which is translated a blazing torch, could be translated blazing lightning. Here's what's going on because those same two Hebrew words are used later to describe what happens on Mount Sinai, when Moses, of course, meets with God himself. The mountain shakes, there is smoke, and there is lightning. So you see what's happening. This smoking pot and blazing torch, it's actually a physical appearance of God himself. This is God showing up physically. And what happens? The smoking torch passes between the severed animals. And yet, Abram doesn't. In effect, God is passing between the severed animals. And this is deeply significant. Uh, now, there's, there's something else which is also useful to know about covenants when they were made in those days. Uh, say a king conquered a smaller nation he would often then formalize a covenant with that nation. And when you had non-equals entering into a covenant, it was usually only the guy who'd been conquered, the lesser party, who would actually take the oath, uh, the vassal, if you like. It would be the vassal who would uh, pass between the severed animals. So the king would state to him, this is what's required of you. And then uh, the vassal would take the oath. The vassal would go between the severed animals. Maybe if the king was in a particularly good mood, he would also pass through, but primarily it was for the lesser party to take the oath, not for the, the senior one. Yet what happens with Abram? Who is it that takes the oath? Who is it that passes between the severed animals? 
it's not the lesser party. It's not Abraham. He does nothing apart from sleep. It is God Himself. And that is the great surprise. God Himself, the greater party, is taking on covenant obligations. He is taking on the oath. God is saying, may this be unto me if I don't bless you, Abraham, as I have promised. May I be torn apart as these animals have been if I don't keep my word. How do you think Abraham would have felt about that? He would have been deeply assured. God himself is taking an oath to deliver on his word. And Abraham has no part to play. It's totally unconditional. It's an unconditional covenant. Abraham has no duties to perform to receive the blessings of the covenant. All that's required of him is to have faith in God's promises, in his word. That would have left Abraham speechless. He expected to be the one who was passing between the seven animals. And yet God is saying, no, you do nothing. I will take the oath. Now, when we take a step back and we look at the the Bible more widely and we look at this whole topic of uh, covenants, uh, what do we see? We actually see that covenants fall into two categories in the Bible. On the one hand, we have what we're calling conditional covenants. On the other hand, we have what we see here in Genesis 15, an unconditional covenant. So on the one hand, we've got uh, conditional, which we'll call the covenant of works. And on the other unconditional, the covenants of grace. Let's dig down on each of those firstly uh, to get a a clearer view of what they are. So, uh, this conditional covenant of works, it states terms and conditions. Uh, If you meet them, then you receive blessing. But if you fail to meet them, there are penalties, there are covenant curses. So, if you were with us uh, earlier in our series, when we got to Genesis chapter 2, we've already seen one of them. It's what we called the creation covenant. We saw, if you're with us, that it's not actually stated as a covenant, but it is clearly implied. Uh, Genesis 2, Garden of Eden. Humanity is given one condition for retaining God's blessing, obedience to God's word. God says to them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in this creation covenant, there is a stated curse if they breach it. What is the penalty? If you do, you will die. There it is, the curse of the covenant. And we know, tragically, they breach the covenant and they fall under the curse. Uh, Another one, uh, and this is like the the Mount, Mount Everest, if you like, of conditional covenants in the Old Testament skyline, is given to Moses on Mount Sinai. What were the terms and conditions? The law of God, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Forty years after Sinai, uh, Israel is on the cusp of entering the Promised Land. Uh, Looking back over the previous 40 years, things haven't gone that well covenantally. Uh, They have repeatedly breached the covenant with God, given it on Sinai. They haven't obeyed Him. And so, prior to entering the Promised Land, Moses now gives them another sermon. And he renews the covenant given on Sinai before the people enter the land. And he reminds them of the covenant terms. And here we see it again, a conditional covenant. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 
is part of Moses' sermon to the people on the cusp of entering the land. And he says this, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth and all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. That if is a little word, but it has huge significance. Uh, then in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, he moves on to the dark side of the conditional, conditional covenant. Uh, verse 15, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So there it is. It's conditional, the covenant of works. Uh, blessing if you obey, cursing if you don't. Uh, when you think about it, this conditional covenant of works, it really makes sense. There's a sense of uh, integrity about it. Uh, what sort of deity would God be if people were just free to treat him with complete disrespect and disregard? What sort of God would he be if he allowed people just to to violate his laws without any censure. We know, don't we, that God is rightly passionate for his glory and his honor. We know, don't we, that God is holy and he is just and his moral character will not allow him to condone evil or rebellion. So, uh, the conditional covenant of works, it speaks of God's holiness. And under this conditional covenant, the blessing comes through obedience to God's laws. Let's move on now to the second form of covenant we see in the Bible. It's unconditional, and it's what we're going to call the covenant of grace. And it's what we have here in Genesis 15, this unconditional covenant of grace. Uh, here, God undertakes to bless those who trust in his word no matter what. No matter what. Uh, the blessing doesn't come through performance but it comes through trust. All that's required is faith in God's promise to bless. And God says, effectively, may it be unto me, as to these seven animals, if I do not bless you, Abraham, and all your descendants after you. God says, in effect, may I be torn in two if I don't keep my word to bless you. It's totally unconditional. And if the conditional covenant of works points to God's holiness, then the unconditional covenant of God's grace speaks of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to you and to me. God is faithful to his creation. God is patient. He doesn't wish anyone to perish. God is loving. He has a passion in his heart for people and all that he has made. And God leans more towards blessing than cursing. He's not malevolent. He's not vindictive. So, this unconditional covenant of grace speaks of God's faithfulness and his love. And under it, blessing comes through faith in God's promises, not through performance. So here's the dilemma. How do we reconcile the two? Uh, surely they seem to be contradictory. How can God on the one hand make 
unconditional promises to bless those who have faith in his promises, and yet on the other hand, say that his blessing is conditional on obedience. How do we reconcile the tension between the two? Is God's blessing conditional or is it unconditional? And that is the tension we see all the way through the Old Testament. And as Old Testament history progresses, the outlook of forever realizing this unconditional promise made to Abraham seems to become increasingly remote. The barrier is this conditional Mosaic covenant. What does Israel do? How do they perform under that covenant? They continually fail. They don't keep God's law. They, they, they breach it, and so they trigger the covenant curse. And yet, something else interesting happens as the Old Testament history progresses. Because the Old Testament prophets start to look forward to a day when, give, when there is hope. The Old Testament prophets start to look forward to a future day when God will grant His people a new covenant in place of this conditional Mosaic covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 31 is one example of this. And it brings great hope to God's people. This is what Jeremiah says in verse 33 of chapter 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see? He's talking of a new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. Fast forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. We go to the night before he goes to the cross and he's having the Last Supper. And Jesus says something revealing, which then puts hooks into all these promises of the Old Testament prophecies of a new covenant. And what Jesus reveals is that his imminent death the following day will bring about this promised new covenant. Luke 22, verse 20. Jesus says to his disciples, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. There it is. The new covenant. And it's about to happen. It's about to come about through his blood being poured out on the cross. And what do we see? As we look at Jesus' life, it all becomes clear. It all starts to fit together. The tension we've seen all through the Old Testament of these two covenants is wonderfully resolved. What do we see in his life? During Jesus' life, he did what nobody before him or after him has been able or ever will be able to do. During his life, Jesus perfectly fulfills this covenant of works. He lives a perfect life in perfect obedience to God's law in every respect. So Jesus doesn't just not commit adultery. He never even looks lustfully at a woman. Jesus doesn't just not commit murder. He never even has a malicious thought in his head, even towards those who are driving cruel nails through his arms and his legs. Do you see, in Jesus' life, he perfectly fulfills this conditional covenant of works. And therefore, he is entitled to the blessings promised to all who live it out fully. And yet, what do we see? 
he willingly takes upon himself our curse under this condition and this covenant of works. On the cross, he is torn in two so that we need not be. On the cross, he takes the curse of the covenant of works so that the blessing of the covenant of grace might come to all who put their faith in him. Uh, Galatians is a wonderful letter to read. Uh, I've been digging down this recently. And Galatians 3 verse 13 pulls it all together beautifully. Look at this. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So in closing, uh, let's look at the implications which flow out of this. Let's look at the the blessings that flow out of faith in Christ and in God's promises. We only have time to look at three in closing. But the first is, righteousness by faith brings freedom. You see, as a means of salvation, this covenant of works could never deliver for ordinary human beings. Uh, In Galatians, the covenant of works is described as a prison as an enslaving force. Uh, The Galatian believers actually were in danger of moving away from salvation by faith. They are actually being swayed to try and earn their salvation through the covenant of works, through observing the law. And to this, Paul says the following in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, And do not let yourself be burned again by a yoke of slavery. Do you see what faith in Christ brings? Freedom. Absolute freedom. To try and earn our salvation through the covenant of works, it is enslaving. And we cannot do it. But Christ brings freedom. And the more clearly we see this, the more brightly the gospel shines. The more clearly we see this, the more brightly the gospel shines compared to all other world religions, all other supposed gospels. And there is nothing like it. Being made right with God through faith in Christ alone brings incredible freedom and liberty. It releases us from this futile treadmill of trying to seek and earn God's favor through works. And it releases us also from all uncertainty and doubt and fear. So that's the second blessing which comes to us through faith in Christ. Not only assurance, but certainty and assurance. Remember the, uh, the oath to Abraham and all after him? God gave it to them to deepen their sense of assurance and certainty in his word. God is saying, I'm going to go on oath. And I'm doing this so that you can be even more certain that I will do what I've said I will do. It's meant to give Abraham and all who come after him who are in the line of faith certainty amidst the storms of life. God actually intends it to act like an anchor to our souls. What do we feel in our hearts when we experience the realities of life which buffet us? 
What do we feel? Times of uncertainty. Can God really be trusted? And yet faith in Christ says yes. It is like an assurance. It's like an anchor to our soul. It gives us a sure hope that God will deliver on his word. Hebrews 16 verse 17 expresses it better than I could. Let me read it to you. Looking back to this oath of what we've just seen in Genesis 15, it says this. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. There it is. All other gospels, supposed gospels, all other world religions cannot offer that. They cannot offer us assurance that we will ultimately get to have God, to be in heaven or its equivalent. Only Christ can deliver that, and that is a firm anchor, that hope we have, grounded and rooted in faith in Him. God of the universe does not lie. He's gone on oath and we can trust his word and we can have that peace in our hearts now and that assurance now. And it is the right of every believer in Christ. And the final implication which flows out of faith in Christ is this. Obedience. Obedience to God. Go back to the Old Testament again. Uh, looking forward to the new covenant, the prophets spoke of a time when God would transform his people. Because the track record of God's people in the Old Testament is woeful. They just can't do it. They cannot live under the covenant of works and achieve God's blessing. They keep breaching it. They keep failing to live out God's law. And so the prophets look forward to a time when God would transform his people so that they could actually have the power to live out God's law. They would be inwardly transformed, it says. Uh, Ezekiel 36 is one of these wonderful prof uh, prophecies. Look at verse 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Fast forward to us. Fast forward to the New Testament era. And we now know, of course, that all of that has come to us in Christ and through faith in Him. At Pentecost, this new era of the indwelling Spirit begins. Everyone who has faith then has the Spirit inwardly transforming them, giving them a new heart and a new will and desire to live out God's law. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 14 again. Let me remind you of what it says. It says this, Christ redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. There it is. So everyone who put their faith in Christ, we have this priceless blessing of the Spirit within 
And it's through that Spirit that we are born again. Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3. It's through that Spirit that we then walk every day the journey of faith. And the Spirit counsels us. The Spirit goes with us on the journey. And the Spirit does what Jeremiah the prophet prophesied. He writes God's moral law on our hearts. That which we could not earn salvation by, God now writes in our hearts that we now live by as saved people. And this wonderful Spirit guides us and rebukes us at times. And Christians are now invited to live in step with the Spirit, to cooperate with Him now on life's journey as He transforms us inwardly. Not to willfully resist the Spirit, but to keep in step with Him. Galatians 55, verse 16. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So you see, it all comes to us in Jesus, and by faith in God's promises, we get everything. We get God Himself. God becomes our shield, as promised Abraham. God becomes our reward, as promised Abraham. And so, as people who trust in Christ, let's live lives that bring Him glory as we journey together with the indwelling Spirit, ultimately to all that's promised us in the future, the inheritance of the new creation and life in a world cleansed of all sin and all sadness. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his wonderful work of his life and his death. Thank you for him wonderfully living out the covenant of works, that conditional covenant on our behalf, but also for then willfully taking on us, on himself, the curse of the covenant of works on our behalf. Thank you that through him, this unconditional covenant of grace is realized. He brings about the new covenant which realizes all that's promised through the unconditional covenant given to Abraham. Thank you that that all becomes ours when we trust in him, when we have faith in your promises fulfilled for us through the, by the Lord Jesus. Please then help us now to live and to walk each day in step with the Spirit, living lives which live out your moral law, not because we're saved by doing so, but because we've already been saved and we now want to do so to your glory. Please therefore continue to empower us and loosen the grip of sin on our hearts, we pray, such that we lead lives which increasingly glorify you and bring us delight on life's journey to the new creation. Amen.